So I was a pretty gross teenager. I had a competition with one of my friends one time. Uh, who could go the longest during summer holidays without having a shower? Um, I lost. Uh, that's the best loss I've ever had. Uh, he won, but we both went uh, basically two months without having a shower. Please don't, please don't judge me. I also wasn't a great student. Uh, you know, I had a solid average of C's, failed all my core classes in grade 10. Um, just gives you a little bit of picture of me as a teenager. teenager. Two, 12 hours away, there was another teenager, and uh, she was very hygienic. <laughs> she was a straight-A student, uh, top of her class. And uh, years and years later, uh, those two people would meet and get married. And, uh, and Lisa and I have often talked about if we would have met each other in high school, uh, we would not be married. We would not be friends. Uh, we would have no relationship together. But these two people that were 12 hours apart met in the middle of Saskatchewan in a little uh, town called Hepburn, uh, where they were trapped in a bubble together for three years. And over the course of those three years... Uh, it turns out that they did like each other, uh, that these people that were two worlds apart in this context of time and space had the capacity to build a relationship that otherwise probably wouldn't have happened. The title this morning is Tending the Heart in a Time of Tinder. Now, the word tending is a word, it's a shepherding and farming term, uh, and it has really connotations of taking your time with something, being patient with something. Uh, you tend to a garden, uh, and so you can bring a garden to life when you tend to it and you pay attention to it. Shepherds tend to their flocks, which means they take the time and space and patience it takes to move a herd of animals from one place to another and make sure that they're fed. Tending means to wait, to pay attention, to have an expectation, to not give up easily. Tinder, we know as an app. Uh, but Tinder comes from the, the word that means fire. It's a, it's a fire starter. It's that first phase of that fire that you're building where you put uh, the, the Tinder together that'll light up really quick and it's over really, really fast. And that app and that idea is a great picture of our culture where uh, the app itself uh, if you've heard uh, swipe right or swipe left, that, that's re in reference to the app. So you, you look at somebody's profile, and if you like them, you swipe. You're afraid to tell me because you're like, I don't want them to know that I'm on Tinder. <laughs> I'm afraid to tell you because I don't want you to think that I'm on Tinder. Uh, so I believe it's if you swipe right, it's like I'm interested. If they swipe right, it's like they're interested. Boom, uh, you get a match. If you're not interested, you swipe left. You know, if Lisa and I were looking at each other's Tinder profiles in high school, she would have been swiping life left, and I would have probably been swiping right. Uh, but we wouldn't have gotten together at any point. Uh, but this is the way our world works. We do expedited relationships. We try and expedite uh, things. We live in a fast, fast world. And, uh, and I'm not... This is not a commentary on dating apps or all that. I, I know that that's the norm, uh, and that goes on now. But what I am talking about is the fact that relationships, our best relationships with our best friends, our families, our spouses, our kids, the relationships that are healthy and that thrive have one thing in common, and that's time and commitment 
to one another. It gives the space and the time for a thriving, healthy relationship to happen. And as we kind of conclude the series on reconstruction, and we've spent last week and this week talking about um, how to do reconstruction well, I want to talk about this part of this helix that, so if we talk about this, this process that we all go through through our life of where we believe something, we've constructed a belief system, we've deconstructed something, we've taken it apart and analyzed it because, you know, our views have changed, our understanding has changed, we've changed, we've had different experiences, hurts, questions, doubts, disappointments, and all these things cause us to question our beliefs uh, but that's one point in the journey, and if we keep turning the corner, we end up going around reconstruction. So we, again, we've used this idea of a helix every week, that when you go around and around, you're not going to the same point, but you're going deeper and deeper and deeper, uh, just like a screw is going around and further and further into uh, the object that it's going into. And so part of reconstruction and doing reconstruction well is, I believe, is patience, And patience is really, really difficult in a time of tinder. Tending to something is really difficult in a time of tinder. Last week, we talked about the importance of community, our present community, and also the historic community of faith, that we can't leave the current community of faith. God's created us for community. But we also can't leave the historic community of faith that has passed on the faith that we've inherited and we grab hold of and we choose to anchor our lives around. Uh, And so today, we look at the idea of patience and taking time uh, because that is the context which relationships thrive. And if faith describes our relationship with God, it's also the context in which our relationship with God thrives. Uh, so with that in mind, we go to Exodus 16. And the background of the Exodus story up until this point is Exodus, or the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And the reason they were slaves in Egypt, because the, uh, before they were slaves, there was this great famine. This is the history of Joseph and his brothers, and Joseph ends up finding his way to, uh, to Egypt, and then his brothers come and find him um, because they were in desperate need of food during the famine, uh, and that led all of Joseph's family, which was the nation of Israel before it became a nation, uh, to the land of Egypt. And in the land of Egypt, over that 400 years of slavery, uh, the Israelite nation was growing and multiplying and Uh, They were becoming quite substantial. And so God had provided for them uh, through Egypt, actually. And then while they were in Egypt, they became slaves over those 400 years. And so they were making bricks, and they were, uh, you know, living the hard life under the thumb of Pharaoh uh, as slaves in the land of Egypt. God had a heart for his people. And so God wanted to bring his people out of Egypt because he had a plan for them. And so this is the plan of, this is the language of salvation in the Old Testament. God wanted to save the Israelite people because he had a purpose and a plan for for them. And so he's uh, appointed Moses to actually help save God's people from Egypt and bring them into the the promised land. Uh, But before they get to that point, they would have to go through the wilderness. So at this point in the story, Moses, there's all the plagues and all that stuff. And Moses takes God's people. They are journeying towards the promised land and they find themselves in the wilderness. And they've been now in the wilderness for two months and 15 days. And on the 15th day of the second month, So one month and 15 days, I guess it would be. On the 15th day of the second month, they had come out of Egypt in the desert. And the whole community did what? 
grumbled. Have you ever grumbled? Have you ever complained? Has something ever not gone your way? I mean, I was just, I was in way too many flights this last week, and I was complaining and grumbling and frustrated. Uh, At the end of my third connection flight to get back to Calgary, I was squished in the middle of a row, uh, you know, full flight, no empty spaces, and this guy was like shaking his legs, and he had his elbows on each side of the thing. I had no space. I mean, I was grumbling. Uh, I'm a grumbler. Grumbling, we know really, really well. This isn't new. This was happening thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, It's part of human nature. When you have a plan and things aren't going your way, you grumble. You complain. You want to be somewhere else other than where you are. And this story, the Exodus story in the wilderness in Exodus 16, is, I would say, defined by the word grumble. In fact, the word grumble shows up five times in this story. It's not a word that's commonly used in the scripture, but it's used a lot in the story. And the Israelites grumbled, and they grumbled, and they grumbled, and they grumbled uh, because they were in the wilderness. And they were saying to themselves, if only we had stayed in Egypt. It was better when we were slaves in Egypt, when we were working, you know, 15 hours a day, making bricks, not even able to build our, uh, you know, meet our quotas that Pharaoh wanted. Uh, But it was better because at least we had food. At least they fed us meat. And here we are in the, in, in the wilderness and God has abandoned us. And Moses, you're ridiculous. They're grumbling. And so God hears their grumbling. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and will gather enough food for that day. In this way, I will what? Test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So they're grumbling. God hears the grumbling. He says, I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to provide bread for them every single day. This manna bread, this miraculous bread. And when they wake up in the morning, it's going to be there. And it's going to be there six days a week. Uh, I'm not going to give it on the seventh day, uh, but I'm going to give enough on the sixth day that they can actually hang on to it so there will be enough for them to feed them on the seventh day. God's actually teaching them the rhythm of life, that you can't just go and go and go, that Sabbath and rest is important. And God provides the context and the miracle for them to have enough even in the midst of their rest. Really, really important. If they were to hoard and hang on to their food, the first six days that the food grew moldy and had maggots, and a couple people tried that and it was unedible the next day, and God was teaching them that you don't need a hoard, that you can trust me. I'm different than Pharaoh. You can rest with me. You can trust me in the process, and I'm going to provide for you. And so they're going through this, uh, but God's intent in this was to test them. And we use the word testing. You're testing my patience. God is testing their patience. In other words, he's actually testing their faith. He's testing their ability to trust God in the wilderness. I think God still tests us. Because there's something about the testing in the wilderness in our lives that creates the type of character and people God intends for us to be. God had a plan and a call for the people of Israel. He was saving them, not just to save them, but he was saving them for a purpose. But in order for them to understand their purpose and live into that purpose, they had to be a certain type of nation, a certain type of people. That transformation actually only happened through that time of testing and patience. And so God is testing them. Uh, There's a proverb that says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Sometimes God actually hides things from us because he's seeking to actually make us the type of people 
whose patience and persistence can actually handle the truth and the thing that he wants to give us. God won't ruin us with truth if we're not ready or have the character to hold that truth. And so one way we can think about it is that sometimes God doesn't hide things from us. God hides things for us. In a tender culture, we hate this. The idea of waiting for anything, being formed into something, that time and patience is necessary to get what I actually want and long for. This is the testing that's happening for the Israelites in the wilderness. And spoiler alert, they failed the test. At the end of chapter 16, the writer of Exodus gives us kind of a fast-forward picture about the end of the story before he continues with the story. And he says, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years. You know, they thought, they thought a month and 15 days was bad. Uh, they ate that diet for 40 years because uh, they were slow. They didn't, get, they didn't get the point. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan, the promised land. And almost all of them, except for a couple, were not allowed to enter into the promised land. So what happened? Why did they fail the test? Well, it's a long story, and you can read about it in Exodus, but I think you know the, the climax of the story we can see in Exodus chapter 32. Moses is going up and down the mountain. He's their leader, and he, uh, the reason he's going up and down the mountain is because he's having these encounters with God uh, on the mountain, and God is speaking to him and revealing things to him, and he's coming down the mountain, and he's sharing these things uh, with uh, the people of God. Uh, this is where the burning bush uh, encounter happens. And so Moses is going up the, the mountain, and uh, this is what the text says at the beginning of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, In other words, when the people of God got impatient, what did they do in their impatience? They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. He's taken too long. So in the midst of our impatience and waiting, and we don't want to wait anymore, uh, Let's make idols instead. Let's make new gods. Impatience. We don't often think about patience. I mean, we, we talk about impatience, and we talk, we talk about impatience, but we don't actually give the value and the weight to patience and the formation of faith that I think it deserves. And if I were to oversimplify the story of the Israelite people, I think their key issue was impatience. If faith means trust, which is what that's the word faith means, a lack of trust comes when we are impatient. Those things go hand in hand. We don't wait. We don't suffer. We give up. We don't believe. We're quick to surrender and change course. Yes, because we lack trust, but on a deeper level, because we've just grown impatient. There's a book called The Patient Ferment written by Alan Creeder, and it's a, it's a history book on the first few hundred years of the church. Um, let me summarize the whole book for you. Uh, 
the Christian movement went from being this riffraff movement of a few people in Jerusalem to a movement that transformed the entire Roman Empire and world over the course of 300 years. And so the question is, how did that happen? How did that transformation in that culture happen? Uh, And the thesis, the idea of his book is he would say that patience was the virtue that gave the church the capacity and opportunity to transform the entire Roman culture. The patience of the church that clung to a truth in the midst of suffering. They didn't give up. They were humble. They led quiet lives, not agreeable lives, but they loved one another, and they were willing to even die for one another in their faith. And this patient ferment is the word that he uses that happened over the course of a few centuries transformed the whole world. If trust is the defining characteristic of faith, then impatience is the road to destruction where we put trust in other things other than God. And if if impatience is the road to destruction, then I would say patience is the antidote or it's the necessary ingredient to do reconstruction well. I believe that it's infinitely more difficult in our day, in our time, to be patient than it was 3,000 years ago for those Israelites in the wilderness. I think it's harder today to be patient. I think if we were in the wilderness, we would pass the test even less. We live in a culture of speed. Thank thank you, Keanu Reeves. Um, Some of you are old enough to remember this movie. The premise of the movie is there's a bomb on a bus And as long as the bus is going 80 kilometers an hour, that bomb will not go off. But the bus can't slow down. And so the whole movie is Keanu Reeves driving this bus, you know, launching over, you know, freeways and uh, can't put on the brakes of the bus. I thought it was the best movie of my life when I saw it as a kid. Um, but, But the whole movie is about speed and you can't slow down. And if you do slow down, your life is going to blow up and everything is going to be ruined. Powerful picture... I think of our culture. We are just people of speed. We are people that can't slow down. For whatever reason or whatever motive, we feel like if we slow down and stop, our life is going to unravel. So we keep going. And so the question is, how did did we get here? A little bit of a history of speed. Uh, The sundial goes back to approximately 200 B.C., And in 200 BC, people were complaining about the new technology and how it was ruining their life. And this new technology was the sundial. In fact, there's an ancient poem where the author says, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions? They're like, this sundial is ruining my life. This concept of time and the way that we understand time, and uh, this was not part of the ancient mindset. So the sundial is kind of the beginning of tracking time in that way. And we fast forward uh, quite a few hundred years later to the era of monks, and in the 6th century, St. Benedict organized the monastery and the faith community around seven prayer times a day. And this was, this was a good motive to try and form the people of faith, but it had unintended consequences. By the 12th century, the, mo- the monks had invented the mechanical clock to rally 
all of the people in the monasteries to this time of prayer. Uh, and now faith was, even the way we practice faith was, try, was starting to change. How we organized and did community and rhythms of faith was changing because of our understanding of time. By 1370, most historians point to this year as the turning point where our Western relationship to time really changed. It was the year that the first public clock went up in Germany. And before that time, most people were, their relationship to time was natural. So when the sun went down, we went down to sleep. When the sun got up, we got up to sleep. And you went to bed with the moon, you got up with the sun, and the days were long in the summer, and you worked hard in the summer, but the days were short in the winter, and you worked less in the winter. And there was a natural rhythm to life that went with the seasons. And this all changed when we created these public systems of time. And so the slog of nine to five and working nonstop every single day um, started to happen. And we stopped listening to our bodies. We stopped paying attention to the seasons. We stopped getting up at the sun and going down at the moon. And we started living by the clock. In some ways, I could say we started living like slaves in Egypt. And we stopped paying attention to our bodies resting and taking time. We became more efficient, yes. We got more done, yes. But I think in the process, we also became less human and more machine. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. And you can kind of see where this is going. Soon it made it possible to stay up past sunset even in your own home. So before that, you know, when the sun went down, it was dark in your home, and you would actually naturally go to sleep. Before the invention of the light bulb, people slept an average of 11 hours a night. How many does that sound amazing? I'm like, (laughs) hello. That's amazing. But between the clock, between the, the light bulb, and us creating forms of light that aren't dependent on the sun, we started to change the rhythms of how we do life, and we started to live our lives faster. We started to work more. We started to become, yes, more productive. And about a century ago, technology started to change our relationship with time yet again when we had these things that started being invented called labor-saving uh, devices, labor-saving technology. An example of this um, you know, back in the day, if you wanted to warm your house, you would have had to gone out to Kananaskis, cut down some trees, cut them all up, brought them back to your fireplace, probably loaded them into your basement, uh, and then periodically throughout the week, throughout the days, you'd have to go down and put the logs in the fire to keep your house warm, and all of these things took time. A labor-saving device showed up called the thermostat, and all you have to do now is go and turn a dial and go sit back down, and your house heated up. Now you can even do that on your phone. You don't even have to get out off your couch. Some of you guys don't get off your couch. You just change the heat right on your smartphone. There's a lot of examples of this. We used to walk everywhere. Now we have cars to go everywhere. We used to make all of our food at home, and now we have takeout food. We used to have to even go out in our cars to get takeout food, but now we have apps called Skip the Dishes that bring our food to the house. We don't even have to go get it. We, I don't know if you remember this. We have to go rent. We used to have to go rent a movie. I don't know if there's a thing called Blockbuster. You'd go in and you would like go through the rows. You know, do I want a comedy? Do I want to? And you'd actually physically go rent a movie and you'd have to bring it back like a day and a half later or else you were overcharged. But now you just go online. You go Netflix. I don't have to leave my couch. I can watch whatever I want whenever I want. You used to have to wait till somebody was around to phone them. There's a phone on the wall. You know, what time can I phone you? Uh, you know, at 6 o'clock, and they had to be by the phone, and you would actually ring it. And if they weren't by the phone, you wouldn't be able to get a hold of them. 
You know, your parents would leave in a car, and you wouldn't have an idea of when the next time you would talk to them was. Like, this is frightening when we think about it now. You mean I wouldn't be able to talk to my kids, connect with my kids? Yes. We used to write letters by hand. Now we send emails. Now we send text messages. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but in my world, like, if you don't respond to a text message from somebody in your family within five minutes, it's like, where are you? Yet, in spite of smartphones and programmable devices that are supposed to make our lives easier, we feel that we are more and more and more short on time than we have ever been in our lives. We spend nearly four weeks more a year working than people did in 1979. Harvard Business Review conducted a study on the change in social status in North America, and it used to be that, the, that leisure, leisure time was a sign of wealth. People with more money spent time in more leisurely places, playing tennis on a beach, playing golf. But now, busyness is a sign of wealth. A century ago, the less you worked, the more status you had, and now that's flipped. The more you work, the busier you are. It's like a badge of, I'm really, really busy. Oh, you must be really, really important and successful. Things have changed. So in the midst of all this change, did the community of faith, and they have, but have we been listening? Did the community of faith ask the question long enough, is all of this that's happening good for our souls? Even though we want it, even though we invent it, even though you can have everything at the the touch of a button now, Is it actually good for our souls? And is it good for our faith? You know, this all reached the climax in 2007, and I think 2007 will be just as an important moment in people's relationship to time as the light bulb was in the 1800s. 2007 was the year where Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. It's also the year Facebook opened, Twitter the App Store, all of this started the digital age. One study done a few years ago found that the average iPhone user touches his or, phone, his or her phone 2,600 times a day. That's the average iPhone user. Millennials are double that. I don't know what the stats are for Gen Z or Gen A or whatever generation we're at now. It's changing us. Our tension is dropping. Before the digital revolution, our tension was 12 seconds long. And so we were already struggling at 12 seconds for our attention. The average attention of a goldfish is nine seconds. Now, since the digital age, our attention span has gone to eight seconds. So we're losing to goldfish. If you want to dive into this topic of speed and how we unwrap that, uh, John Mark Homer wrote a book called The Elimination of Hurry. We did a sermon series on it a long time ago um, that really unpacks this. But I wanted to revisit this for this morning just simply because I believe that this is one of the critical issues that stops us from reconstructing well. We don't take time in our culture, in our world, 
We don't take time. We expect a relationship to happen in a swipe when it might take three years at a Bible college with somebody you wouldn't even have talked to to convince yourself this is a relationship worth pursuing. How does that affect our faith? And the question is simple. How does all this distraction, addiction, pace impact our faith, impact our ability to reconstruct well? Now, in John 6, Jesus just finished feeding the 5,000. He was, there was lots of crowds that were following him. They were loving Jesus, loving the miracles that he was doing. Um, and Jesus, you know, took a boat after he fed that whole crowd. They followed Jesus around the, the lake. They ended up following him again on the other side. And he turns to the crowds and basically says, you're just following me because you got a good meal yesterday. You're just following me because you see me do a few miracles and you're, you're amazed at the miracles that I'm doing and you just want another meal. You want another sign. Um, and don't spend your energy chasing food that spoils. Don't spend your energy finding, you know, chasing these signs that aren't going to leave you uh, uh, satisfied, that aren't going to give you eternal life. He's like, I have something to offer you that's more than just bread. So this is kind of summary of what's happening in uh, John chapter 7. And they asked Jesus, what is the sign that we should believe you? What will you do? And Jesus responds to them by saying, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. It says that God gave them bread from heaven to eat. God has given bread that comes from heaven, and it will, be, it will give life to the whole world. And the people said to Jesus, give us this bread. And Jesus responded to them and said, I am the bread of life. So Jesus references this story in Exodus. And basically says, you're chasing things around. You're just following me because you want the next sign, you want the next meal. But let me tell you what you're really looking for. You're looking for eternal life. You're looking for fullness of life. And I actually have that to give to you. They say, we want that um, and Jesus says, well, I am the bread of life. And this led everyone to like confusion and argument, argument arguing. Um, in fact, it says this, at this time, the Jews there began to what? Grumble. Again, not a word that shows up very much in scripture. Jesus refers to the passage in Exodus and says, uh, it's like this, except I am the actual manna, bread from life that's coming out of heaven. They grumbled, and then John is telling us, the people here also grumbled. It says, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can we now say, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus then said this to them, your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven for anyone may eat it and not die. I am the living bread and came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread, talking about himself, will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And people were like, what are you talking about? You want us to eat your flesh? And Jesus is like, yes. And this is how they respond. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept this? Is there anything in God's word, anything in the Bible, anything about Jesus that you have a hard time with? They'd say, this is hard teaching. You're not alone. 
Jesus, aware that his disciples were grumbling, uh, said to them, does this offend you? Again, the word grumbling shows up, this connection to the Exodus story. Does this offend you? Talking to his closest disciples, those 12. Which is interesting because in our world that's about us and our pleasure and getting what we want when we want in a world of immediacy, we are offended easily. We are disappointed quickly. And Jesus is offended people. Jesus has disappointed people because he's not going to play the genie game and just do a miracle whenever they want and just keep feeding them. He says sometimes there's something more that you're actually looking for that you don't realize. And Jesus offends and disappoints, and which causes me to question or ask the question, is the point of Jesus to like Jesus or to follow Jesus? Because if Jesus is king, which is what Messiah means, there's going to be points where, you know, Jesus, I don't like you a whole lot right now. This is hard. This teaching is hard. I don't know how to understand this. But Jesus actually calls us first and foremost to follow him, which takes patience, which takes struggling, which takes commitment, which means that there's going to be times where you're like, I don't know what I'm thinking, but I, am I called to like Jesus or follow him? Jesus says, and what if, does this offend you? Well, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. From this time, many of his disciples did what? Turn back and no longer followed him. Because Jesus wouldn't form into their expectations and they weren't willing to wait around. And then Jesus turns and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Are you going to leave too? Is this too hard for you? And then Simon Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, to whom, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? And there's something so honest and beautiful about this point in Scripture. I don't think Peter's saying, I figured it all out. I got all the answers. This is really easy for me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in all of the world, I haven't found anything else that satisfies me that I can cling to. And so I'm going to choose to follow it. Where, where else would I go for life and hope? He says, where should I go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this did not believe that Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't have doubts. We know they had doubts. In fact, we know we don't know if any of those people that all walked away from Jesus, how many of them came back. But we do know that Peter had his own doubts. All those people that walked away Sometimes I wonder, you know, what would have happened? You know, this was close to the death and resurrection of Jesus. If they would have just hung on a little longer. If they just would have taken a little bit more time. Yeah, this whole, you know, spiel that Jesus did about eating my flesh and having life. And, uh, you know, that would have been mind-boggling. I probably would have walked away too. This guy's crazy. Uh, But then after the death and resurrection, 
you look back on it and say, well, now that makes sense. I understand what Jesus was saying. That it was through his death, his flesh, his physical crucifixion, and then his resurrection that he was going to bring life to the world. But they didn't wait long enough. And so Peter, at this point, he says, well, I'll, I'm not... I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to turn away. But of course, if you know the story of Peter, he did. You know, in, in spite of his best intentions, uh, as time went on and Jesus was talking about this crucifixion moment and, Jesus, and Peter's like, I'm never going to walk away from you. And, and Jesus says, you know what? You are going to walk away from me. Before the rooster crows, you're going to betray me three times. And we know that that happened. We also know that there were other disciples that betrayed Jesus. We know that one of those disciples was Judas that betrayed Jesus. And I often think about what's the difference between Peter and Judas. And if you're familiar with the story of the Gospels, Judas betrayed Jesus, gave him over to the religious leaders, and then he felt so much remorse that he had betrayed his best friend that between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, Judas Judas decided to commit suicide and take his own life. I find the story of Judas so heartbreaking. And then I look at the story of Peter, who also betrayed his best friend, Jesus, who promised that he wouldn't. And yet Peter, we hold up as one of the great heroes of the faith, and Judas, we hold as like the great betrayer of Jesus. And what is the difference between Peter and Judas if it's not the difference that one of them waited three days and one of them only waited two? Sometimes I think we find ourselves in destruction because we're impatient. And I would say none of our experiences or questions are new under the sun, that there have been faith, people of faith throughout history that have wrestled with the same experiences that you've gone through, the same doubts that you've gone through, the same hurts that you've gone through. And there are examples of people of faith that chose to be patient and suffer and endure And sometimes people not only ask questions for months and years, sometimes people ask questions for life, for their entire lifetime. Along the way, I think we've lost the capacity to sit with our questions and our doubts and our hurts for periods of time and let God form us in the wilderness. Could it be if we were more patient? If we waited just a little bit longer, maybe a lot longer, that God would form in us something that we're actually longing for. I've referred to the book After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda, and I want to quote at length one paragraph here, uh, because I think it summarizes uh, this point around reconstruction really well. We are shaped less by our questions than by the community with whom we wrestle with those questions. We must not be satisfied with replacing church and community and the Eucharist or the Lord's table, communion, with podcasts. Open yourself to the questions that may take decades to pray through, even eternity. And do it with some people until you have all the wrinkles, until you all have wrinkles. Critique the immediate and instead hunger for the wise. Order your pizzas and books and music online, but don't take your deepest doubts and questions there. Bring them to God's people on the ground. 
question the assumption that a PhD is the same thing as being wise, or the assumption that the most viewed or viral has anything to do with veracity. Tenor and holiness are not the same thing. They never have been. And for God's sake, give the Bible a chance. In a world of lemmings, we need one more book. We need one book, sorry, that doesn't bow to the pressures of peer review. I think there's so much wisdom in this idea of patience. In fact, I would say between community, between understanding what the community of faith, uh, meeting with the community of faith currently and what the community of faith throughout history has said, and then the decision to actually sit with my doubts and questions and hurts for the long haul and not give up the main thing, to be patient in faith, I think those things will help us reconstruct well. I'd like you to stand with me as we move into a closing song. This has been fun. I've really enjoyed this series. Um, I hope you have too. I've enjoyed the series uh, because, uh, you know, one of our values at SunWest is authenticity. Uh, and we're not interested in pretense. We're not interested in people pretending they got everything figured out and they're perfect and there's no pain or hardship or suffering. Um, you know, the gospel is good news. And it's not fake good news. It's good news for people like you and me who are real human beings that have real experiences, real questions, real doubts. Uh, and yet, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life shows up. And he doesn't show up in a way that answers all of our questions. But he shows up in a way that kind of looks beyond our questions. Uh, and it doesn't mean it's easy, but there's something comforting about Peter when he says, I don't know, where else would I go? Uh, and to be honest, there's been points in my life around this helix where, you know, I don't, you know, I'm struggling with whatever, and I get to a place of just, Jesus, where else would I go? Your gospel, your death, your resurrection, the price that you paid to bring me into relationship with yourself the life that, and hope that you've given me yesterday, but also for eternity, why would I run from that? And it doesn't mean I let go of my mind and my questions and my experiences, but I bring them and I'm patient with them and I wrestle with them. The name Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, the name Israel means to wrestle with God. And I believe to be the people of God is characterized by the capacity and your ability and your willingness to wrestle with God. Sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's a decade. Sometimes there's questions. If you look through church history, there's questions that guys ask for their whole lives. But that doesn't mean that they let go. Like Peter, they said, where else would I go? And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that you don't have to have it figured out to put your faith in Jesus. In fact, Christianity is the only religion that says you know, the fact that you don't figure, have it figured out is, is the, um, it's the thing that qualifies you for the gift of grace. Humility is the thing that qualifies you for the gift of the gospel. And so I would invite you to come humbly. If you've never given your lives to Jesus, say, you know, I don't have it all figured out, but Jesus, I want you to be the center of my life.
I want to follow you. And maybe for some of you, it's just the next step in your journey, in your helix. And you're saying, you know, I'm not ignoring those things that have happened, but I'm choosing to cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we thank you that you have been tempted in every way just as we are. That's what the scriptures say. Lord, we thank you that you took the sins of the world upon yourself. Lord, we thank you that you took every hurt, pain, question, doubt. And sometimes, Lord, you don't give us a rational answer, but you have given us the beautiful picture and message of your death and resurrection that we know that there's nothing in this world, there's nothing in all of life and death, in all of the earth that can separate us from the love of God. Um, And so, Lord, we go around this helix and we choose to put our faith in you. Lord, we choose to say, where else would we go? That you have the gift of eternal life. Why would we run anywhere else? So, Lord, we choose to center our lives around you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's my prayer that uh, this series has been an encouragement to you on your faith journey. Uh, And like we said at the very first week, uh, if you haven't gone, if you're not in a time of deconstruction, uh, you might have been in the past. Uh, It might be coming in the future, or if some of you maybe are. Uh, And there's also people in your life that are, you can see this pattern going on. Uh, And I think that the point of all of this is that Jesus is the center Uh, He has called us to follow him. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we have to leave our brains, our doubts, our hurts, and our experiences behind. He takes it all. And we can trust him with it. But that means that it does require patience. It does mean that, that faith and trust in a culture of immediacy, in a culture where you are the center, where you can have what you want whenever you want it. Uh, Faith is a real choice to put into practice. The people of God are people that says, me and my feelings, my, my thoughts aren't actually the main thing. I believe what's best for me in the world is to put Jesus at the center. Uh, This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, And so, as I said, if you've never made that decision before, we'd love to pray for you. This prayer team's available at the end of the service. Uh, If you want to take that step of faith, uh, you can do that today. Uh, If you want prayer for anything else, we'd love to pray for you about that too. If you're you're like, I'm not ready to cross that line of faith, um, but it doesn't mean I'm walking away. I just have lots of questions. That's great. Uh, Please bring your questions here. Don't leave the community of faith. Um, one very, very practical way that you can explore those questions is Alpha. We're running that on Monday nights. Uh, this is week three. It's not too late to jump in, uh, but it is probably getting too late uh, week four. It's a 10-week thing. Um, so if, if you or somebody would really benefit from processing questions in the context of community, I would encourage you to come to Alpha. That's tomorrow night uh, at 6.30. 6.30. Um, so you can come on down to that. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for 
the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us to be our advocate, to be our comforter. Lord, for anyone in this room that feels condemned or shamed um, or like they need to hide because of experiences or questions or doubts, Lord, we just recognize that that is not from you. Lord, your spirit comes to advocate for us, to comfort us, to draw us close to you. Um, Lord, may we hear your voice. May we draw near to you. Um, Lord, may we not succumb to the narrative of this world that says deconstruction is the end of your faith story. May we recognize uh, that is one step in our faith story. May we be resilient, courageous, and patient people. And may you do again in our world and our culture what you've done many times in the world where the patient, enduring, courageous church holds the seeds that transforms the culture around them. May we be those type of people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Have a great week. We'll see some of you tomorrow at Alpha. Prayer teams are available.